0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To The Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Riverside FM has helped me record HD video calls with people from all over the world, from Australia and Hong Kong to the west coast of America. Its magic editor allows for logos and different styles of production to be applied to the composed tracks and it stores internet backups of everything, even when local files fail. And it is now home to your sound and production board that allows you to add videos and sounds during live streams. I don't know where I would be without Riverside FM, it's the only option that I can see worth paying for in terms of video call recording, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Anytime I have had an issue the support staff have been on hand, the cost can be scaled to your monthly needs and they are constantly adding tutorials and new features including automatic transcripts. So check out riverside.fm today to try it out for free, you'll never go back once you've had a go. This episode is sponsored by searchhustle.com, your resource for digital marketing training. It's taught by digital marketers at the bleeding edge for digital marketers at the bleeding edge, business owners, and fresh marketing graduates. Right now, you can get their services and resources free for a limited time at searchhustle.com forward slash beta dash group. That's searchhustle.com slash beta dash group. One of the most overlooked aspects of running a podcast is who you host with. You might think it doesn't matter, as I did for quite a while, but it's really crucial to pick a host that is not only going to be reliable and evolve. That's why today's sponsor is Disktopia, what they call Podcaster's Paradise. Whether you're starting a new podcast or need to migrate one over from another host, you have found the best podcast hosting solution. Period. With more features and flexibility than any other platform, from unlimited storage and uploads to multiple networks, Disktopia has it all. With Disktopia, you'll get a podcast profile page, the ability to manage multiple episodes and an embeddable episode web player, all on a secure site. You can even have private or exclusive episodes, which you'll get paid for, and your podcast will be distributed everywhere via RSS feeds. Your listeners will get unlimited downloads you'll get access to unique listener reports and their analytics are second to none. And on top of all of that, you get 24 seven world-class customer support. Dystopia will give you creative freedom for all your podcasts with integrated merch as well. That's right, just upload it all in one place and you can set your content to be downloadable or even stream only. Disctopia gives podcasters more power. So what are you waiting for? Start today by using our code chatter that c-h-a-t-t-e-r to get your first three months free on us that's a special code for listeners of this podcast and three months of free hosting by using the code chatter check out dystopia today links for everything will be in the description below so check them out and then please enjoy the podcast does help when we turn the microphones on. Uh, so yeah, I think this is us live. Uh, yes, everything appears to be working. Wonderful. Okay, so everybody, hello. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Lee Jones. Uh, Lee is a professor of politics and international relations at the Queen Mary University of London. Uh, hopefully, I've got that right. You did fantastic so uh today we're here to talk about uh, a whole, whole range of stuff so i wanted to talk to you about your thoughts on the vaccine passports uh, after you appeared on gb news to talk about them uh, some of your work on china and as we were discussing before we started there uh your organization the full brexit which i'm sure is going to be a fascinating discussion but uh to kick us off yeah the the vaccine passports are being proposed in northern ireland they're still being talked about by British government they've been implemented in Wales and in Scotland and in my mind there doesn't seem to be any um, rational argument in favour of them in a free society Um, what was your your take on the whole scheme uh, Lee? I mean on GB News I
1: was speaking about vaccine mandates specifically the the compulsory vaccination of health and social care workers who are going to lose their job in in uh, very, very shortly if they don't take uh, a vaccine and I was arguing that that was just totally immoral um, but I also argued that it was irrational because uh, the vaccines don't work in such a way that uh, it ends transmission <clears throat> you can still get the virus if you have the vaccine you can still transmit the virus and there's some evidence suggesting that uh, you can transmit it more or less the same at least in a, in a domestic setting in a household setting Um, But either way, we know from the evidence that having the vaccine doesn't prevent you contracting or spreading the virus. The main benefit to you is that you will suffer less with the virus. You get a less serious infection. You're much less likely to be hospitalized. You're much less likely to die. So it's a direct benefit to you. But it's a relatively limited benefit to other people because you can still transmit it. So that's why vaccine mandates saying to health and social care workers, you've got to be vaccinated quite apart from the questions of bodily autonomy, which are, I would say, prior and most important, that it's up to you as to what you allow to put in your body and nobody should impose anything on you. That's, that's the, the principled issue. The practical issue is that it's irrational to to even try to compel it because it doesn't actually stop you getting and spreading the disease. So in what way is it protecting old people in care homes or sick people in hospitals? And the same, applies to vaccine passports because you can come into my theatre, let's say, I check your um, vaccination status and you've been vaccinated. You can still be carrying the disease. You can still transmit that disease to people sitting near you in the theatre for two and a half hours. So it doesn't protect anybody. It's completely irrational. It's just hygiene theatre. And that's what we've been greeted, greeted with throughout the pandemic, all these irrational measures that don't make any sense are not backed by any scientific reasoning or evidence. Uh, And just this kind of coercive and theatrical approach to public health. I mean, if you really want to combat the spread of COVID-19, then it'd be much more rational to require testing, you know, to prove that you don't actually have the disease at the time in which you're coming into the theatre. If you genuinely believe that it is this disastrous killer disease uh, and you're going to be transmitting it, even though you're asymptomatic, although... evidence on that is also questionable if you genuinely believe that's the case you want everybody to prove they're not carrying it you don't want everybody to prove that they're carrying a document that doesn't guarantee they're not carrying it so the whole policy is just utterly insane as far as i can tell
0: Yeah. yeah i mean the 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 thing that is just baffling like and i mean baffling to me is that for example in in northern ireland right now we have um the two parties that I would have considered to be full of the most sensible people in Northern Irish politics is the people, uh, the SDLP and the Alliance Party who have oft campaigned for um, equality, equal rights, um, justice, all, all of those buzzwords, but like all of the things related to that category. And yet Ooh. they are the people now pushing this divisive and discriminatory policy. And any time that I attempt to engage with them, Uh, to, to try and get some sort of like understanding of even just what their rationale is behind it, because that's the, that's what I want. You know, I want to engage with what they think in, because, you know, there's a fair chance that uh, they've seen something that I haven't, you know, maybe they have some wondrous evidence that this is going to be the thing that's going to, you know, finally end COVID or, but (laughs) I, I laugh about that, but, I've phoned the press offices of the SDLP, of the Alliance Party, of of several parties in Northern Ireland, and none of them can give me any substantive document that explains why they are backing this policy. I have tried to engage with them on Twitter and been blocked by people. Like, why can we not have, like, a discussion where we present evidence about this topic? That's
1: a very big question. Um really you're asking how do you explain the politics of the last 18 months and that's complex to do i think there's a lot of different things going on um i think you can't get away from the fact that modern societies our society is to a large extent governed by fear um and that's 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 a long time it's been like that for a long time Um, you know, the, some of the earliest manifestations of that were the AIDS crisis in the 80s, the BSE uh, scares in the 90s, bird flu in the in the 2000s, and that's just talking about disease, you know, that's without talking about terrorism and so on. That itself reflects a prior um, collapse of ideological contestation in politics. So politics didn't used to be about fear. Politics used to be about competing visions of the future. So, you know, so in, in Britain, class-based politics between Labour on the left offering a social democratic vision of the future and the Conservatives on the right um, offering a, a more um, conservative free market view of, of the future. And that ideological contestation collapsed in the 1980s uh, with the victory of Thatcher and the new right and the defeat, crushing defeat of the left. And everything that we inhabit today is the sort of ruins of that 20th century ideological contestation, sometimes called the end of history, uh, following Francis Fukuyama. In the absence of ideological contestation, you get politics narrowing to competing um, parties saying that they're more competent at governing the state and are better at sort of looking after the people. And fear is one of the main ways in which political parties have connected with the electorate or tried to connect with the electorate. Um, to show that they are responding to the people's concerns, perhaps invoking those concerns in them and then showing that they can um, resolve those concerns. So in the the absence of visions that are capable of inspiring popular support, the the politicians increasingly, I think, are are resorting to the use of of fear to mobilize support and legitimize their position. In a context of uh, weak democratic engagement, political turnout, turnout elections have collapsed political party membership has collapsed, trade union membership has collapsed, political participation more generally has collapsed. So there's this big disconnection between people and the state and and political parties. Um, And and one of the ways in which political elites try to bridge that gap is through the use of fear. Um, And this is not, um, to be clear about this, I'm not saying this is some kind of deliberate, nefarious tactics, some kind of elite conspiracy or something like that. It's just second nature to them. This is, this is what politics has become. It's the kind of structural condition of politics that they're just competing alternatives of fear. So think about the last few years in British politics. Uh, Labour has, has argued that, you know, the Tories are going to drive us off a cliff because of Brexit. You know, the world is going to end. Uh, everybody's going to get super gonorrhea. Uh, the money will run out. We'll run out of chemicals to keep clean water on. And the conservatives have argued that if Jeremy Corbyn gets into power, then you know uh, we'll be invaded by Russia. Uh, he'll sell us out to Venezuela, etc., etc. I mean, these are the, just these are not positive visions of the future. You know, these are contending fears about the future. And of course, both sides are sort of pushing climate apocalypse as the next thing, and so on. It's and it's not that they they don't genuinely believe these things either. It's just fear is the metier through which contemporary politics is, is parlayed. They don't really have anything else to offer. Mm. And so when something like this comes along, uh, they they latch onto it um, because it gives them an opportunity to sort of connect with, with the electorate and say, look, we're looking after you. You know, we're doing the right thing. We're taking the right decisions. Uh, we 're serving the public we 're keeping people safe. you know safety and security are the flip side of fear, and so politics then becomes all about safety and security and no, and again, nothing else there 's nothing else except safety and security if there 's nothing else but fear. Mm. so security and safety become these sort of absolute values. We must be guarded from the threats to our existence um, and for a long time that 's been Terrorism, for example. So think of all the, the civil liberties that have been eroded, the everyday freedoms um, that have been eroded in the name of, of safety from terrorism, uh, the prevent uh, duty in public school in public uh, institutions, um, you know, dragging kids as young as five to be interrogated because of supposed you know terrorist sympathies or whatever. These are you know long-standing problems. Covid is just that on steroids, if you like. So to them, it makes perfect sense that you'd want to secure the population. People have got to be kept safe. That's the role of political parties. That's the role of state. That's the role of government. But anything that gets in the way of that is a threat. And you can, you can see why it's that on steroids, because in COVID, because we're all potential disease carriers, we're all potentially threats to each other, right? So instead of thinking about what binds us together as a political community, what unites us as a society, what collective projects we can be engaged in, the state is now involved in trying to seize individuals as potential threats to one another and wants to regulate those relationships. Um, And and COVID, again, is just the most extreme case of that, where we live in a constant state of insecurity threatened by one another. Um, the, The concept of of hate speech is another example of how the state sees us as potential threats to one another. We might harm each other through the nasty things that we say to each other, either in person or online. And so the state needs to step in to regulate how we speak to one another, what speech is allowed and permissible, um, because we're going to we are threats to each other, and therefore the state is needed to mediate those social relationships. So again, this is not something new. There's a con- there's a continuum here. When COVID comes along, the threat is potentially lethal, like you can kill Granny, as the, as the as the campaigns put it. So the state is required to step in and ensure that everybody behaves responsibly um, to protect others. And there's a duty to reassure others, to protect others from the, the bad conduct of one another. And in that context, it 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 hardly matters that there might be sort of lack of evidence that these Measures work. They will reach for whatever they can in order to try to protect us from each other. That's their instinct now, as a sort of regulators of society and regulators of in- of interdependent relationships. Because that's all that's all they've got to offer. Bottom <laughs> awesome line.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, the the way you've put it there, the the lack of a positive vision for the future is a really really interesting um way of looking at like the entire last sort of yeah 20 years of politics and and especially that's become um exacerbated since uh, technology has allowed uh political campaigns to like hone in really really specifically on beers and and divisions um and sort of like yeah that 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 it's an almost predatory nature of politics in a way that it's it's just playing on like the worst things that we can imagine in order to, you know, try and get us to do what they want, essentially. And I I I can't I still can't reconcile like because maybe maybe the fear of COVID is like higher than anything else, but I can't seem to like figure out why this thing and it could just be the the media environment or the way our politicians have conducted themselves but uh, so for example i've had quite a lot of fun in in all honesty when i've seen people talking about the vaccine passports to say okay well i am totally in favor of bmi passports that's body mass index passports uh, to prevent uh, people of a certain weight buying certain kinds of food because you know obesity puts a serious strain on the nhs and they go, oh no, well that's not the same. You can't, you can't do that. That's a, and and for me, um, it it's it's essentially the same idea. It's like it's like trying to prevent unwanted pregnancies by, you know, illegal uh, making abortion illegal. It's like a coercive measure to get people to do something that they want. And I don't understand right. how the how people don't goes, see that as worrying. <laughs>
1: that goes way back, though. So, and this is the, this is the thing. I think you've got to see it as. Uh, An an acceleration of something that was already in place, although, you know, March 2020 seems to be this dramatic break because we get lockdown, which is unprecedented, you know, never tried before, never planned for, never conceived of in public health. Um, And so the temptation to see that as something unusual. But way back in, I think, 2003, there was a book published by uh, Michael Fitzpatrick, who's a a GP called The Tyranny of Health. And it was a critique of New Labour's um, health policy. And Fitzpatrick was making, you know, broadly in the, in the tradition of the argument I've just made about the hollowing out of substantive visions of politics and the way that governments use fear to connect with electorates. Fitzpatrick is arguing that, that the New Labour government used fears about health to connect public with the public and that led them into the regulation of lifestyle so not quite bmi passports but there were plenty of coercive measures introduced to try to encourage healthy eating um, to try to nudge people towards healthy eating this idea of using behavioral sciences so-called nudge sort of surreptitiously, you know, manipulating people so that they'll do, they'll take the right choice, right? the choice that's best for them, to so encourage them to take more exercise, to not eat so much sugar, to drink less alcohol, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And it's all sort of tiny drip, drip measures that are surreptitiously designed to sort of push people in, in the right direction. And, you know, and, and and very few people objected to that at the time because
0: it's not I just. Do you mind if yeah, I just course. stop you there is that a bad thing like is that not what we're doing like it, it, the the theory of like taxation is that like you tax the things you want to discourage and you like allow you know you, you, you There's a difference. Taxes, but like I'm saying is if we're saying that all of these measures are bad should there be no like uh, attempts by government to uh, like subtly influence like the way the public is is acting is that is is there just the no fundamental
1: there's a fundamental difference between taxation and what I'm talking about, the use of behavioral sciences and the, so, and the creation of the so-called nudge unit within government, which was an innovation of the new labor government. Um, taxation is uh, like a price signal. So I increase uh, duty on alcohol, for example, um, and then that is supposed to influence your rational calculation. Okay, can I now afford that alcohol? Do I get the benefit from the alcohol that alcohol that justifies the increased price? You know, what am I going to have to sacrifice in order to afford the alcohol or the cigarettes or whatever else it is? The logic behind um, taxation is that you're a rational person. And when you engage in activity, you're making cost benefit analysis. So you're judging that you'll get a certain amount of good utility out of that packet of cigarettes or of that bottle of whiskey or whatever it is that you buy. And if I can shift the price of it, then it might revise your cost-benefit analysis. The presumption is that you're a thinking, autonomous, rational creature. And what I'm trying to do is change the calculus that you make. Nudge operates on a completely different basis. Nudge actually assumes that people often make wrong choices, irrational choices. And it doesn't treat you as an autonomous thinking individual. It treats you as an object to be manipulated by the state in a way that is not apparent. So it's not just the government comes out and says, hey, let's all eat more healthily, You know, Boris Johnson goes on a bike ride or something like that, to encourage you to do it. Nudge is using what behavioral scientists understand about the way the human mind works to push you into doing the right thing against, without perhaps being conscious. So it's not trying to affect your conscious rational decision-making. Is trying to manipulate your behavior through surreptitious means. And that, to me, is, is subtly but crucially qualitatively different because the government there is not treating you as an adult to be reasoned with. Because you can be reasoned with by the government. The government can say, do this, do that. You know, this is for your own good. And you, as, the re- as an autonomous citizen, can say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but actually I still enjoy a drink or I still enjoy my cigarette. So I'm going to do it anyway. Thank you very much. Whereas nudge is about, is about sort of saying, well, this person can't really think for themselves. I need to sort of subtly manipulate them into doing what is best for them. It's very paternalistic. It doesn't treat you as an autonomous adult that's capable of making your own decision. The decisions have to be made for you by people that know better and then enacted by behavioral scientists who understand how your mind works better than you do. And this can manipulate you into doing what the state thinks. Now. You may think what's the problem with reducing obesity what's the problem with reducing smoking all the rest of it these are all good intentions but this is all about the relationship between the state and the individual right what is the balance between these things what is the appropriate relationship between these two things who's to decide that the objectives set down by government and then manipulated through behavioral scientists are the correct ones um, shouldn't if if the government wishes to exercise leadership in society, which is, there's nothing wrong with doing that, isn't that best done overtly, treating people as equals, rather than a paternalistic regime that tries to manipulate everybody to do what the government wants? So it gets to questions of you know power, autonomy, authority. These and and when it comes to COVID, all this is just ramped up to eleven. Yeah, the diary is turned up to eleven, and 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 suddenly people can see that there is is a question of liberty and it even gets to questions of bodily autonomy. And we have a huge state apparatus dedicated to nudging us and, and manipulating us. Because it may well be the case, for example, that governments, you know, can governments really be so blind to the evidence about vaccine passports or the evidence about face masks, for example, the scientific evidence does not support the idea that face masks are effective in controlling the spread of respiratory disease. Mm. That's not what the scientific evidence said. That's why at the beginning of the pandemic, the World Health Organization and all the governments worldwide were not recommending the use of face masks. And then they changed their tune. Why? It wasn't because there was a sudden you know, outburst of good scientific evidence showing against the basis of decades of, of research. Um, that the the scientific consensus had shifted. That's not the case. So that something else must be at work here. So sometimes it may well be possible that that governments and their advisors in public, at least will support a particular course of action, not because it has the ostensible desired effect, right? But because it has a nudge effect, right? So sometimes it's been quite clear. Sometimes they've sort of let it slip. I remember when uh, face masks were announced, uh, as mandated in in the UK. Uh, This was last summer. It was fairly explicit in government statements that this was about reassuring people that it was safe to go back to the shops when non-essential shops reopened. It was about making people feel like they were safe. So they may well know that actually doesn't make that much difference. Right, the effect is, is really marginal, mm. if any, it might make people feel better. So in other words, people have been mandated to wear these things on their face in order to reassure the public so that they go out and start spending money again. Right? Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, it's a minor sacrifice to wear something on your face, people feel better, and money starts flowing through the economy. That's how they would r- rationalize that kind of policy intervention to themselves. It's not that they feel, it's not that they're bond villains, you know, sitting in a cave, <laughs> stroking their white cat and thinking, aha, you know, how do we nefariously manipulate the, the population to do horrible things? You know, it is all done in the name of the greater good. They're, they're doing what they consider to be the right thing that most people will benefit from. But the question is whether we want a government that relates to us like that, that thinks it knows better than we do, that thinks that we should be, that thinks that we should be led by the nose If you like, manipulated into doing the right thing, so that most people benefit. Even talk to us, reason with us, treat us as adults, and then let us make our own decisions. That's my attitude towards the state, Um, and that's why I don't like these kinds of interventions.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's it's really concerning um, that we're that we're sort of heading down this road um, of 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 governments sort of moving and and you know maybe you're right maybe i'm like a, maybe i'm underestimating how how dangerous even that nudge unit was uh because i don't know i'm kind of fine with it if 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 it's it's not like imposing massively like as long as it's not like restricting my personal ability to do what i want i I get i I guess i'm fine with it so
1: it's a cliche but first they came for the smokers right i did not speak up because i wasn't a smoker so i've never smoked but i was opposed to banning smoking in public um because i could see how this was the thin end of the wedge right The, the the level of scientific support for for passive smoking causing serious health harms is really minimal right it's really minimal it's been cooked up the idea is to make it harder for people to smoke in order to discourage smoking right because we know that smoking is really bad for you we've known that since the 50s this is not new scientific evidence so it's not really about my health because i don't smoke i'm not really going to be damaged okay you know, my clothes are less smelly when I go out in the evening, you know, I, my, my hair doesn't, doesn't stink of smoke. I gain some kind of marginal benefit. But what's lost is the autonomy of individuals to decide for themselves. And I could see that was a problem. So mm. even though it didn't affect me personally, but most people, I think, you're right, they don't, they don't take that view. They They're focused on themselves. And as long as nobody's interfering with them, then no problem. But then something like COVID comes along, for example, where the government is literally interfering with everybody. And that is what means that at a population level, there's lots of people who don't like this. And so they, they, they stand up against it, which is why there's, there's quite a lot of vaccine hesitancy and, um, and protests and so on. Um, so, you know, I always try to take a, a principled position, even if, it, even if something doesn't particularly affect me. I mean, I'm vaccinated. You know, I got my shot. Um I'm not I am not anti-vaccine. Mm. I mean, um, I'm anti yeah. coercion I'm anti-coercion. So, you know, and that's I think a lot of people like that actually. They're not necessarily opposed to the vaccine. Um, yeah. I have I have, you know, quite a nuanced position on the vaccine. I don't necessarily think it's right for everybody. I don't think we should be vaccinating children. I don't think young people benefit a great deal from it because they're not at risk from the disease, et cetera, et cetera. But what I am opposed to is state coercion. The state is far too powerful vis-a-vis its own citizenry at the moment. And we seem to have lost sight of the fact that the state is there to serve us rather than the other way around. So this is about the relationship between us as citizens of a society and the people that we elect to rule us. And they need to remember that we're the political masters and not them. So it's not right for the state to try to manipulate us because we should be in charge, right? In a democratic society, we're in charge. We decide how power is distributed in society. We elect a government and the government is our servant. That's the theory anyway, right? Often it doesn't work like that. But that's the ideal. And that's the kind of society that I want to live in, one where we enjoy popular sovereignty, right? A true democracy where... We are collectively in charge of our destiny. That's the kind of society that I want to live in. I don't want to live in a society where paternalistic scientists and politicians think that they know what's best for me and they're going to manipulate me into doing what 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 they think is best for me. Mm. Right. I think I've got as much of a say in what is best for me as anybody else. In fact, probably more.
0: Yeah, and I guess this is this is the uh bodily autonomy and individual responsibility that um many people to find to be a strange concept um in the 21st century not sure well. how that happened but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, to 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 speak about um a government that has overstepped itself in terms of Going from the idea of a government that serves the people to one that has become incredibly authoritarian over the past seventy years is is the Chinese government. And and you've written um, a, re- a considerable amount about about China. W- we'll get into some of the other stuff you've written, but to transition here, what extent do you think the Chinese response in lockdowns, etc influenced the rest of the world like did they are they the reason that we did all this or uh, was it our own our own you know individual pro decision making perhaps should we say I think, I think that's a it's a question
1: with a complex answer so what i don't subscribe to is the idea that this was some kind of uh you know ccp black operation to Uh, you know, trick the world into thinking that there was some deadly disease, which was all a gigantic hoax. And then everybody went into lockdown and, you know, China sort of secretly secretly sort of cackling behind the scenes, which, I mean, I I caricature only slightly versions of that argument circulate all the time, um, including among you know, anti-lockdown groups comprised of relatively sensible people. I know because I was effectively kicked out of one of these groups for for challenging this sort of
0: <laughs> really
1: challenging this sort of line. Yes, I'm afraid so. Um, uh, so, what I what I think is clear is that the the rest of the world did copy the Chinese Communist Party's lockdown approach. I think that's very clear. Uh, Because lockdown, let's not forget what lockdown, where the the term lockdown came from. It came from the way that American prison managers manage prison riots. They lock down the prison. Everybody is confined to their cells so that the riots stop. Um, This is not a public health policy. This is the way that prison managers treat criminals. So lockdown was obviously not part of the public health arsenal before last year. It was not part of World Health Organization guidelines that uh, states have implemented around the world. It was not part of the UK or any, any other country's uh, plans for dealing with the pandemic. It was never conceived of. It was never supported by scientific evidence because the costs are just so phenomenal of, of doing this. Mm. And it was not thought also that this would be effective in curtailing the spread of the disease. So if it hadn't been for the Chinese, um, Implementing this approach, it's not—it's difficult to conceive that, that independently, other governments around the world would have followed this approach. But once the Chinese did it, and they were obviously the canary in the coal mine, in so far as COVID emerged in in China, circulated there for quite a long time before it spread to other countries. And so the the world at that moment in time—you remember—that was there was not very much discussion of the rest of the world. It was focused very tightly on China and therefore what the Chinese government was doing. And there were these you know, horrendous um, videos coming of people dropping dead in the street and then people being welded into their homes by state forces. And I think you know, people around the world were watching that and feeling genuinely terrified. You know, there were figures circulating at the time of extremely high uh, case fatality ratios. You know, this was gonna wipe out millions of people. Um, and, you know, this is again, this is not new, mm. these kinds of claims have circulated around every single outbreak of zoonotic um, disease for 15 plus years, you know, the claim in the 2000s was that bird flu was going to kill over 300 million people worldwide, for example. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, people have been prepared for this, and they've been prepared through for, for movies and all this kind of stuff. And they're watching this, and it's terrifying. And I think there is also this view in the in the west of china as a sort of as the chinese regime this very competent authoritarian regime that can just get you know get things done kind of knows what it's doing engage in planning and so on in a way that the west often can't mm. and so instead of there being sort of doubts about this people were thinking oh well if the chinese are doing this it must be really serious i mean there were some initial doubts i do remember you know when the uh, People being welded into their homes, and there were these images of drones kind of flying over people and telling old people to go back home when they're out for a walk, for example. There was some people say, Oh, this is kind of faintly horrifying, you know, this is turning into some kind of dystopian nightmare. But then as it spread to our societies, um, the panic took hold, and the demand for lockdown was, I think, very strong among. Um, particularly the chattering classes. Um, It was very, very strong in the media, the kind of drumbeat for lockdown. And then, of course, all the uh, epidemiologists came out saying, modelling, saying, oh, we're going to, you know, tens of millions of people are going to die. You know, the Imperial College modelling came out saying uh, a quarter of a million people are going to die if we we don't uh, do lockdown. And, you know, the government, I think, panicked.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, uh, big so,
1: um, I So, people well, understandably, yes, on one level. But of course, popular panic in the face of in the face of a pandemic disease is understandable, because individually, you worry about yourself, your family, all the rest of it. So, so popular panic is regrettable but understandable on one level. But you would hope that a government wouldn't panic. You hope that the political elite and the state establishment will have a bit more a bit more backbone, that they're not going to panic, actually. They're going to take decisions that um, maybe can stand in the face of, of public panic and outrage and media hysteria and so on, and actually will will try to calm things down. And so the question of why that didn't happen is, is the other half of the story. So just because the Chinese did it doesn't mean that everybody was fated to copy it. Mm. Just because people panic doesn't mean that the state had to do it. So the other half of the story is, why did they panic then? Why didn't they stand firm and pursue a different course? And part of the answer to that is, is the politics of fear that we discussed earlier on. And the other part is they were not prepared to manage the pandemic in any other way. So um, if you look at the UK's pandemic preparedness plans and arrangements, the, the kind of material arrangements they had made, it's utterly shambolic. Um, you had um, a pandemic preparedness strategy, which was more like PR than Mm -hmm. genuine preparedness. Mm. Basically, on the basis of scientific evidence, it concluded it was not possible to prevent the spread of a new pandemic disease and it would be a waste of public health resources to try to do so. So they'd adopted a sort of laissez-faire approach that, we can't stop it. So it's going to circulate and all you can do is sort of mitigate the impact on society. So keep society going as much as possible. Don't imagine that you'll close any borders, schools, um, uh, businesses, etc. There was no anticipation of any of that. And there was there was an anticipation that um, between 210 and 315,000 people would die in, in the space of 15 weeks. So the, the state therefore was prepared to not do very much and to accept quite high levels of debt on the basis that you can't really stop it anyway. Mm. Now, it's possible that that's true. And that was all justified with, with reference to the scientific evidence at the time. This strategy dates from 2011, by the way. Mm. Um, it's possible that's true. There's quite a lot of evidence that all the different things that states have done during the pandemic have not actually made very much difference to the rise and fall of, of epidemic curves including lockdowns by the way um, there's, there's quite a lot of people arguing that the you know, voluntary behavior change actually has been more substantial um, impacts than, than, than lockdowns um, that's very contested but in any case it could be true Let, let's say for a second it might be true the question is do people accept that? has there ever been a conversation with the public to say look, we think that pandemic disease is a major risk. You know, It's been at the top of the UK risk register in the National Security Strategy, tier one threat for well over a decade. Mm-hmm. Go to the public, say to them, look, this is on its way. At some point, this is probably going to happen. And this is the way we propose to deal with it. Have a conversation, have a debate, see what the public think. Will they wear a laissez-faire strategy? If not, what else can you do instead? None of that. Basically, this plan was developed by technocrats uh, in private, Without any popular engagement or involvement whatsoever, so there was never any democratic sanction for this. So naturally, when this event does happen, people then panic, and the government says, "Oh, don't worry, we're going to continue with business as usual. We've got this well-prepared plan." Mm. And people are like, mm, "No, that doesn't sound right. You know, this. Uh, I think I want. I expect the government to do more under these circumstances, mm. rather than just stand there and say we're not going to do anything." and then the material investment's even to do quite to do not very much were simply not there because there was no investment in in there's no additional investment at all in the pandemic preparedness strategy they just relied on the existing nhs capabilities and surge capacity and that's really about it and local planners had to make their own preparation even the um, you know the pandemic stockpile of personal protective equipment that had been outsourced to a private French company um, along with the rest of NHS supply chain that had been outsourced under the auspices of Deloitte, the management consultancy, which is now incidentally advising the government on how to respond to the public inquiry on how it handled the the <laughs> pandemic. Um, oh, it was out, It was outsourced and, and at that time the company only had two weeks worth of supplies on its shelves and about half the stock had expired on the shelf. So it just wasn't geared to to supply the necessary things mm. that were needed to cope with the pandemic. And then in terms of like, you know, test and trace, we do need to, you know, find outbreaks and contain them effectively. That was absolutely abysmal. So and um, I'll always remember one particular date will strike will stick in my mind. It's the 12th of March, 2020, because that was the date that my partner came home from work with COVID, right? But <laughs> I strongly believe was COVID did all the things they were supposed to do called one, 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 uh, you know, I've got new car from blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And the response was, have you been to China? No. Uh, are you over, are you over 70? No. Oh, you'll be fine. That was it. And that was when I tweaked. Okay. There's no way we are containing this. No way. Despite all the rhetoric then, because it was, don't worry. Everything's in place. We've got tried and tested systems, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And we later know that 12th of March was the date that then uh, COVID testing was secretly abandoned because the system could only handle five COVID tests per week. (laughs)
0: that's amazing only five. Oh wow
1: and so, and so you can understand why the state panics because ostensibly the state's all been it's all prepared right there's reams of planning documents and strategies and plans and all the rest of it and then you think okay right you know pandemic comes along you take the plan off the shelf you dust it off you expect something to be there right so ministers are in Whitehall, and they're saying, "Right, you know, what's the plan?" Yeah, yeah. And you're they're pulling levers, the
0: like like blow the dust off.
1: Yeah, and it's not attached. to, The levers are just not attached to anything. There's no capacities. There's no specialised hospitals. There's no systems to like segregate COVID patients from normal patients in hospitals. The surge capability of the, of the NHS, what that amounted to, was discharging lots of people from hospital into care homes. Twenty-five thousand people in the first, in the first. You know, April to May, just kicked out of hospital to create space for COVID patients without any testing. So all these older people go back in, and they seed COVID into into care homes, mm. and it kills thousands of people. Yeah. But, you know, that's the, that's the surge capability. That's freeing up t- capacity in the NHS. So n- all the planning is just on paper. It's not really it's not really backed by any material capabilities. If anything, the state weakens its capabilities by outsourcing crucial functions to the private sector. So you've got to understand that part of the equation to understand why the state panics, because you've got ministers and advisors sitting in Whitehall that they have not really looked at this stuff before. They look at it and they think, you know, fuck. There's nothing nothing there, right? This is not going to work. This is a disaster. And at the same time, you've got people baying for lockdown So no wonder they panic Mm. because at least, you know, it gives them some, it buys them some time to try to, to try to uh, improvise some kind of solution. Mm. But then that's all they've been doing for the last 18 months is just making it up as they go along. And some of it's worked. The vaccine stuff has worked quite well, but a lot of it hasn't worked and tens of billions of pounds have been wasted on the shambolic test and trace system, dodgy PPE procurement and so on. and, you know, that's why, that's why the government looks so shambolic mm-hmm. and why it has this strange relationship to scientific expertise that sometimes the things it's doing just don't seem very rational. It changes its mind and contradicts itself. It's literally because the plans just got junked. They basically threw out the plans because there was, there was, there was, they were not connected to anything substantial. And so from then on, they just improvised it day by day they just have to make things up as they go along essentially
0: yeah well i mean speaking of making things up as they go along the 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 other thing that i wanted to speak to you about um was was brexit and your organization uh the full brexit so um yeah do you want to do you want to just like tell us what what that is um first off like give us like the elevator pitch of what the full brexit is and then we can talk a little bit more about it
1: so the full Brexit is a network of academics and policy experts, journalists, and so on, who are all on the broad political left and came together to, uh, to support the Brexit vote, leave voters, but also remain voters that believed in democracy and thought it was important that the 2016 referendum result was, was enacted. Uh, and we came together at a time when it was not clear that that was actually going to happen. In fact, all the the drift was in the opposite direction that that the, the democratic moment of the of the eu referendum which had you know, with enormous turnout um, you know captivated the country in terms of political debate that that moment was being was being lost uh, that you had a political establishment that was not committed to enacting the result that at the best uh, Theresa May's ostensibly pro-Brexit government was engaged in damage limitation and was going to keep us tied as closely to the EU as possible. And at the worst, the um, the ultra-Remainers were committed to trying to overturn the referendum result, delegitimize it,
0: still negate,
1: negate it through a second referendum. Or, yeah, as you say, now, still trying to drag the, I mean, this is a minority sport now, but, um, you know, trying to drag the UK back in. So what we were trying to do was to, was to, to come together to say, look, there's something very serious is on the line here, which is, which is the principle of democracy itself. The principle that, you know, if you ask for a referendum, it was Parliament that asked for a referendum, you know, uh, everybody supported it except the Scottish National Party. You have delegated that decision back to the people that elected you. They've given you a verdict. And if you say, oh, we're not going to do that, or oh, we're not actually going to do anything, you know, progressive or transformative with it, it's very damaging for democracy. Um, and that was that was the core of our argument. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, what
1: yeah. we're trying to do was to sort of stiffen people's resolve really to stick to the to stick to their principles. Um, and also give a different interpretation about what was really going on that you know why people had supported leave in the first place, and it wasn 't to get a Singapore on Thames and it wasn 't to pursue global trade deals you know not, hardly any lever was interested in those things. they wanted a more democratic society, and that was probably what they weren 't going to get mm. uh, under the under the the May deal, so you know we were we were trying to also persuade people on the left that Brexit was something that was important to support.
0: Yeah, um,
1: because obviously m- much of the left had, had sided with the with the EU. Yeah, and we felt that was also going to be disastrous for the left, and especially disastrous for the Labour Party. And of course, it was. You know, we we failed to persuade the left and, and the Labour Party in particular to to rediscover democratic principles, and we predicted that they would destroy Corbyn and we would destroy the Leo party. And, you know, all of our predictions came true. But so in that sense, you know, we were, we were right, but we failed to do the political work that we were established for.
0: Hmm. I mean, one of the, the, the things that I, so I, I, I supported Romain um, quite adamantly. Uh, I didn't trust the Tories. And I still don't um at all i ended up writing an entire book about why um the leave campaign had been an exploitation of divisions in in british society in order to usher in a very very extreme free market neoliberal brexit basically um and that's not what the people i believe voted for um mm. in any way shape or form but uh, like i believe that that is at least what the tories are going to try and give us but at the same time there's there's i i can't gra- grasp why 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 the mo- the majority that i have seen at least anyway like this this is just my personal thought that they can't accept that there could be benefits like i, I wrote the whole book and kind of changed my mind on the eu a bit and decided that in the in the the grand scheme of things it was probably better not to be like inherently linked to that institution and then i have tried to say this to, to Remainers and be like, look, you know, we we lost the argument, people have voted, we have left the EU, let's try and take advantage of whatever like benefits we can. Like, for example, as someone on the left, I hated the fact that the EU state aid rules meant that there was like certain industries we couldn't help, especially yeah. green industries. Um, yeah. I, like for, There's been a great example of things that we could do now in um, a British company who, is, who has bought and is setting up solar farms in Morocco with a huge cable from Morocco, the whole way to the UK, this is the proposal at least anyway, that could right. supply like eight or 9% of the UK's power. And it's like, that wouldn't have been possible in the EU. Isn't that a good thing? But the mm. the the blinders are like, why do you think that people can't accept that? Like, I, do, I still don't want to have left the EU, but now that it's mm. happened, like I wanna try and like take advantage of whatever we can, but why can't people like just think, okay, you know, it's happened now. Like, let's let's do something good with it.
1: I mean, again, that's a co- it's a complex question, and uh, I'm actually just finishing up a a book with some of the some of the guys from the before Brexit, um, which will address some of these questions. Um, but. I mean, there's many ways one could answer that question. One is just on a kind of psychological basis. All the evidence shows that once you make a decision, your mind re- reorders itself behind that decision uh, because we can't deal with cognitive dissonance. You know, if we're facing a difficult decision, uh, we have reasons for and reasons against. Once we make a decision, we don't like the idea that we might be wrong. Hmm. So what we tend to do is reorder our mental uh cognition behind the decision that we've already made so if we buy an expensive car that we probably shouldn't have bought we make excuses about you know oh it's, this bmw is the safest it, you know it's the best for the family or whatever all these kinds of things uh so you know social psychology would predict that once you've made a decision you're not apt to change your mind you're more likely to double down behind it um, and I think that is what happened on both sides, and those kind of leave and remain associations became almost an identity, uh, and their associate people 's associations with leave and remain were much much stronger than their association with individual political parties, which are now quite weak for reasons i we talked about at the top of the show uh, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that um, you know a lot of people had uh, they decided that no good could come of Brexit and they so they're kind of sticking with that position. And there's kind of a couple of reasons for that. One is kind of flawed understanding of what the European Union is and and how it relates to democratic politics. And the second is, you know, specific relationship to to the government, to the current government. You don't trust the Tories, you don't like the Tories. uh, The Tories are up to no good, et cetera, et cetera. So on the first point, what, you know, what is the EU? neither side really understands it is the truth of it so the, the conservative right eurosceptics and populists see the eu as some kind of like foreign imposition you know brussels bureaucrats kind of bossing us around which is not true the most powerful institution in the eu is the council of ministers uh, which comprises elected national officials it's not the commission um and the Commission only has about twenty thousand people working for it anyway, which is just the size of the BBC. So the, the idea that these twenty thousand people somehow run Europe is just it just beggars belief. But that's not right. But equally, the left's idea of the of the EU is this sort of cosmopolitan zone of peace and cooperation that sort of locks in social protections. This is also just completely wrong. Um, it, it's not a it's not a peace project. Um, it has actually fermented in recent years. Big divisions between North and South Europe, for example, um, that is a direct result of the uh, the, the eurozone and the way that it is constructed. Just look at what's happening with the so-called migrant crisis in the border with Belarus. You know, you've got so-called free movement inside and fortress Europe outside. You know, tens of thousands of people have been have been killed trying to get into Europe, and those people have been securitized and others by by, by Europe in what is basically a racist immigration regime. And it's okay for mostly white workers to move around within Europe. Anybody that wants to come from outside, well, no, you can get lost. Um, you know, So the idea that sort of racism is the sole property of, of, of leave voters has often been suggested. It's obviously not right either. Hmm.
0: Um, I mean, Zubi told me when I uh, talked to him about this on his show hmm. that he thought that the Remain voters were the racists because um they that they have the the racism of low expectations and there was a couple of other things he said to me i can't remember but i had it was really interesting to me for him to say that and then we talked about that something i discovered in writing my book in that britain is one of if not the most diverse and accepting society in europe like yeah. we we are the most accepting of people of other races compared to like any other European country. That's France, Austria. Yeah. Uh, like they're they're all pretty racist. Like there there is no like Europe isn't this like wonderful utopia where people are aren't racist. You know, no, I've, I've witnessed it.
1: I'm afraid it's not. And you are right. That's I mean, it's very difficult to measure racism, right? It's very difficult. Uh, but. There are various ways that people have tried to do it through opinion polling, for example. But The opinion polls very it doesn't matter what kind of questions you ask. Uh, Britain is very liberal on questions of uh, racial integration, uh, and it's been getting more liberal uh, over time. The, and the direction is, is unilinear, it just goes in one direction, and it's more progressive than almost any society on Earth. It um, doesn't say we've problems, but that's what the evidence shows. In terms of people's behaviour, it's the same. You know, uh, overt discrimination in the workplace has been abolished for a long time. Discrimination in the provision of public services hardly exists. Um, you know, despite all the talk about a wave of hate crime, actually, if you look at convictions for, um, you know, racially aggravated offences and things like that, they're low and flat. Um, it's all across the the piece when you look at any kind of evidence you know support for far-right political parties is tiny compared to um other eu countries you know it's not this country where a far-right uh party comes second in every presidential election it's france it's not this country where you have far-right populists in power it's it's austria you know it's poland it's hungary it's Italy. It's, the, the way that people think about the UK is just totally divorced from reality and so it's the flip side of that what um, the German sociologist Wolfgang Strait calls the sacralization of the European Union that what, what the EU really is is a neoliberal constitution for Europe and this is why Margaret Thatcher was such a fan of the, of the EU and the single market the whole idea is to is to take market mechanisms and entrench them at the level of the European law so that you can't touch the market. So we have the integration of markets for goods, services, um, capital, and workers. Right. That's what so-called free movement is. It's the integration of European labour markets. Mm-hmm. But it's turned into this, uh, oh, we're so liberal, we're so accepting, we're so cosmopolitan, we're so anti-racist. It's a great example of how something that's really about integrating labour markets so that people can move around and the the factors of production can be efficiently allocated across the European market, which that's not sexy, that's not progressive, that's not nice, that's just neoliberal. And it often has very horrible consequences, including for the people that move, right? Because what it's basically saying to you, like uh, uh, the Conservative government used to say to people in the north, in the 1980s here they used to say get on your bike and find work just move to where the work is well that's what we're saying now to people at the european level like, no work in the deindustrialized
0: parts of eastern europe oh, this go somewhere else mm. and that, yeah, that's that not, actually that initiates great. a brain drain and and the loss of anyone with like yeah. intelligence and ambition from those countries like they're suffering because no, of yeah, the if loss you look at, of the most ambitious at, people
1: yeah, If you look at Romania, for example, they've lost something like uh, 20 30 percent of their doctors since they That's joined amazing. the European Union. yeah, and there's serious population drain, not just not just you know brain drain highly skilled, although that, that is um, you know, substantial, but very large population drain from from the east to the point that it causes serious problems in some of these uh, smaller Eastern European countries. But it's sacralized. So something that is actually about just about market integration, that is what the European Union is for, right? It's market integration. It's about, it's about ensuring that governments don't interfere in market mechanisms. The point about state aid you made is, it exemplifies that also. Don't regulate, don't interfere, allow the free flow of goods, services, capital and labor across the whole market space. That's a neoliberal constitution for Europe. That's what the European Union fundamentally is. Uh, the eurozone is even worse because, obviously, it commits you to um, it commits you to an even more rigid economic regime. But it becomes sacralized; it's presented as cosmopolitan and virtuous, right? That's the ideological le- legitimation. The flip side of that is you must denigrate your national society as lacking in virtue and being immoral, right? That's the flip side. Is, Oh, I hate this country because it's so full of racists and xenophobes and backwards people and you know horrible racist knuckle-dragging gammon you know are so much more like you know Europe you know the place of you know being cosmopolitan and being open to the world and so on and so forth it doesn't really matter when these things are true right because of course to some extent there's some truth in that right yes there are some racist people in the UK yes some people have some conservative and backwards attitude yes you know much there's much to be admired about european culture and society but it isn't that isn't you know entirely true right it, it we just talked about the evidence about you know attitudes towards race and immigration in the uk actually the truth is that britain is well ahead of most of the european countries in this in in these terms but that's something that you can't allow yourself to see or reckon with if you uh uh, engage in this sacralisation because Europe is the space of cosmopolitanism and peace and Britain is the backwards place <laughs> that we've got to somehow sort of suppress and escape from. Yeah. And it's also, it's a very important sort of political mechanism for people as well, because if I believe that everybody in the country is my political equal, then when they vote for something, I have to respect it because they're no better or worse than I am. Now, it doesn't matter that I've got a PhD and I'm a professor and all, it doesn't matter, right? The plumber down the street, the, the, the street sweeper, the bin cleaner, they're my political equal. That means that if they all vote for something and I don't, they've, out, they've outnumbered me three to one, I have to accept it. Mm. But if I can say all those people, well, they're racists, right? They're backwards. They're stupid. They don't know what they're doing. They've been bamboozled by the Leave campaign. They've been manipulated by people online. Not like me. I'm a very clever, discerning, educated person. I I don't fall prey to that kind of manipulation. Of course not. I'm cosmopolitan and virtuous and all the rest of it. I owe them nothing. grammar school. (laughs) I don't owe them anything. I don't have to defer to them as my political equals because they're not my political equals. They're less educated than me, and they're backwards in Mm. terms of their value system. So I can say... I don't owe you anything. In fact, I've got a good reason to ignore you and to, to overturn the result of the referendum because you people are terrible. So it gives me an excuse to impose my minority preferences on the rest of society because I don't conceive of myself as doing that. I conceive of myself as fighting for what's right and virtuous. And, and I think that's what's going on. It's this, this sort of moralization of the European project and the hatred that that implies for the nation, right? The way that people recoil at the very idea that you might be part of a nation and you might have co-nationals that you might owe something. You know, it all is all a part that allows you to be liberated from any sense of responsibility to to other
0: people. Mm. Well, I am unfortunately going to have to stop us here. Um, I am like 100% going to have to ask you to come back on the show at some point because we definitely have a lot more to talk about. Um, But, Lee, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, You can find him on Twitter, Dr. Lee Jones. I will put the link in the description below. And, um, yeah, you can check out uh, The Full Brexit, some of Lee's books uh, on China. And yeah, the upcoming one on Brexit. That's going to be exciting. So, uh, man, I really want to thank you for for taking the time.
1: It's been a pleasure. Nice
0: to talk to you. Are you sick of recording meetings or calls on Zoom, OBS or Zencaster and being hampered by the quality of your internet connection? I had months and months of recording podcasts during the last 18 months where I was at the mercy of my internet connection. An unreliable countryside connection that really, really didn't come through when I needed it to. So what was I to do? I'd spoken to several podcasters about how they dealt with the issue, and one even had a satellite installed, one moved house, and a few were asking guests to record locally and then upload the file later on. And all of these just seemed far too difficult to pursue higher quality video. However, I was tearing my hair out until one particularly fruitful Google search brought me to Riverside FM, a program that allows you to record HD or even 4K video locally and then uploads it automatically to your online studio. From there you can download a video composed of the two sides of the conversation or download them individually. Best of all, if the upload fails part way through, the video is saved locally so you are safe in the case of a glitchy internet or a computer crash. It was an absolute godsend for me and I had been lamenting for months about the pure quality of my video. However now I have a solution. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe and leave a comment for us in the comments below Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you and we'll see you again next time.